This is another episode of Nkata podcast. And um, today I'll be speaking with uh, Nick Mlongo. I don't know if I said it right. <laughs> <laughs> you are there. You are yeah. There. <laughs> um, Nick is a writer from South Africa. Uh, he was born in 1973 in Soweto. Today, he is considered one of the most highly spirited, irreverent voices of post-apartheid South African literary scene. He has uh, six books to his name, beginning with Dog Eat Dog, published in 2014, and then advancing to After Tears. Um, then there's Way Back Home, and then following that is Influenza, and then Soweto Under the Apricot Tree, and finally in 2019, Black Tax. But in between all of this, he's also done a lot of you know, work, you know, because he's also the city editor of the Johannesburg Review of Books, and he has written countless essays within that. He has also written uh, things for children, and he lectures, he gives workshops here and there. He is super, super busy. Um, what I find interesting about his work, which is the reason why I'm wanting to have this conversation with him, is that while his work retains all of the attributes of powerful literary work, that is to say, articulation, poetry, constructive narrative, dealing with topical relevant issues of the society ETC, it is also very accessible, such that it feels that he writes for an audience much broader than the literates of the literate class of the middle class and upwards. So all of this we are going to be discussing and more. And without any further ado, let me acknowledge the presence of Nick Longo here with me. Nick, you're welcome to Nkata Podcast. Oh, thank you very much, my friend, for inviting me. Uh, I really appreciate this. I mean, I'm glad to be here, actually, also been talking to you. You know, the first time we met, actually, it was in, I remember, it was in Dresden, eh? Yeah, yeah. In 2014. Yeah, I, I've even forgotten uh, what year, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it was... Uh, in... No, no, not 2014. I think it's 15, maybe. Oh, it was 15. Yeah, 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 yeah. it was yeah. 15. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know, as I was researching, yeah. I realized that we, we may have crossed paths somewhere, but we didn't yeah. know because yeah. you were also in 2011 at St. Malo. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, Maybe you were not drinking then. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you were drinking, you wouldn't have missed me. <laughs> I was with Teju Cole quite a lot. Yeah. I don't know if you took that train that brought yes. everybody back to Paris. Yes, yes. There was a, a guy, a very, uh, uh, I was sitting, I, I still remember this because it's, um, it, 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 it was something, you know, I was not yet introduced to Europeans, <laughs> but I, 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 it was a, there was a guy from Fiji who used to, well, I, I don't know, maybe from the island, actually, those islands. He was playing his horn throughout Inside the train. Inside the train. Inside the journey. And it yeah. was so beautiful, the journey, actually. I, I really remember that train because it, it yeah. became all of a sudden, because it was a train that was blocked specifically for the event or the artists invited for the event. Oh, is it? Remember, when we were going back to Paris, they, yeah. they booked the whole train. Yeah. For all for all the artists and all the, yeah. the guests of, of, of the festival. Yeah, Safi was there. Yeah. And then... Everyone. Yeah. Safi Atta was there. Yeah. So it became this yeah. long train of, yeah. uh, of artists, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've been around for a long time. The first book was in 2004. Yeah, 2004. It was called Doggy Dog. Yeah. I've been around for a long time. And then just talking about the Doggy Dog a little bit, I was actually coming from a law background. Actually, I did law. I, okay, let me say I failed law in the, at the university. Yeah, but now yeah. before we go yeah. into that, you know, I know we are all, you know, itching. <laughs> and so uh, our listeners as well are itching to yeah. Yeah. to hear you and yeah. that's that's really something good yeah but before we go into that let's you know put everyone in the mood there's this song that you picked out yeah called 
Jive, Soweto. Soweto Jive, yeah. And who's uh, Sipo Hot Sticks Mabuse? Beautiful. So we're yeah. going to play that song and get everybody in that mood, and then we can now begin this conversation.
<laughs> wow, that was uh, yeah, that's a good one. Very so, good, yeah. does it rightfully put us like in the Soweto mood? In a very good Soweto mood, actually. yeah, 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 because it tells Soweto with pictures, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's it's like I'm there now. You can see, and it transport me back to time, you know. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When was the song made? In the 90s, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's only guessing, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the context of it is that, uh, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. I want to dance. Mm-hmm. So we are known for dancing, mm-hmm. actually. So is that you what... might have seen me dancing. <laughs> <laughs> so is that what jive yeah, means in that jive, sense? Jive means yeah. dancing, yeah. yeah. So it's more like um, even going to the nightclub, let's go and jive. Mm-hmm. You know, we're from the very tormenting past. So, mm-hmm. And then the area that we live in, so it itself, it's uh, created out of apartheid. Mm-hmm. There's lots of troubles, divisions, fights and whatever. But when the song like this is playing, it brings everyone together. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, into a mood of reconciliation, into a mood of um, a dance, into a mood of laughter, a smile, you know, mm-hmm. uh, forgetting everything that <laughs> might have happened to you, you know. Yeah, so, and it's very popular in uh, in places of uh, entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you were born in Soweto. Yes. 1973. Yes. Have you always lived in Soweto since that time? Yeah, I've always lived in Soweto except for a particular time when there were a, n- a number of... Um, so so let, let me just say this. Um, most people that live in Soweto are actually coming from... They have two homes. Mm-hmm. So rural area and an urban area. Mm-hmm. So, so Soweto, that's how Soweto was created. It was created as a migrant labor residency. Mm-hmm. And then meaning that you have a rural home. Mm-hmm. A rural home could be 500 kilometers away in KwaZulu-Natal, mm-hmm. in Lipompo, for instance, mm-hmm. and then or in the northwest, but we, uh, or in in Zimbabwe or in uh, Malawi. So migrant. Okay, labor it's really system. that far out. Yes, you yes. can Mig- be in another country. Migrant labor system was actually favored mostly people from outside. Malawians are quite a number of, uh, the number of Malawians and Malawi influence in South Africa. Uh, like for instance, say names that we thought, we grew up thinking that they are South Africans. Mm-hmm. They are actually Malawians. Piri, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, there's a greatest musician called Ray Piri. You know, if you trace everything, they are from there. Mm-hmm. Mozambique used to be huge. You know, there was a train that Yuma Sikela is talking about mm-hmm. called, there's a train coming from uh, Dilag, uh, Dilagua Bay to, you know, mm-hmm. it's because of that, my, he's talking about migrant labor system, mm-hmm. taking migrants from Mozambique uh, into to South Africa. So there's always have been a migrant labor system. So the, so the, the, the melting point was Soweto mm-hmm. and, and Jobek itself. So, that's why Jobek has been vibrant and whatever. Coming back to your question, it's simply because of that, the fact that of the influx control, um, but more specifically, simply because of the, the, the there were lots of fights, like uh, fighting against apartheid, because Soweto was more of a city mm-hmm. or a township that mm-hmm. was more of um, politicized mm-hmm. and a city where most political leaders lived, like mm-hmm. Mandela and wherever. There were always like riots. Mm-hmm. So leading to uprisings. And then you find that in order to avoid a break in the schools, yeah, mm-hmm. my parents had to send me to rural areas at some point mm-hmm. to go and learn. Mm-hmm. And then that's where they sent me to where my mother comes from in Lipopo. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. So it will be like, okay, when schools are closing, 
you are back in Joburg. When schools are open, you go that side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that you don't have a break mm -hmm. and you don't miss a year mm -hmm. of studies. I was born and lived in Soweto throughout, but there were all those kind of uh, movements. You know, like anyone else. That's why they say saying that no one can claim to be from Soweto. We are all Sowetans. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. And um, what was it like growing up in Soweto and you know living in Soweto? I grew up being politicized. I grew up under apartheid during apartheid time. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm saying this is that life was different under apartheid in the sense that when you have to go to school, you have to go to a poor school. So Soweto is like this: it's divided. It's exclusively blacks. Mm -hmm. You know, and then. And across the railway line is exclusively what we call colored place. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So the railway line is actually a kind of a border. A border. And then acro across the railway line on the other side is an Indian place. And the whites are far away wow. you know, in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So uh, you grew up knowing the languages that come around there. You speak specific language. That mm -hmm. is Soweto language. We call it Tsotital. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of all these different languages. Africans, Zulu, Tosa, Tswana, Ndebele, Shangan, Venda. So I grew up speaking all the languages, mm -hmm. you know, but not all as such. It's like you, you speak half of every language mm -hmm. you know, because you are playing with kids from Mm -hmm. Next door, when you want to insult that kid who is colored across the railway line, you want them to hear you in their language. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you'll use their language, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so that's how I grew up. So that's the Soweto that I grew up. We were never allowed to mingle, but Soweto itself forced itself to integrate against the apartheid system, which didn't want them to integrate. Mm -hmm. Because even amongst blacks themselves living in Soweto, which mm -hmm. was divided, in, divided into 48 uh, little sections like Zola, like Shawelo, where I come from, like Orlando West, where I also come from, mm -hmm. like Midlands. So all those areas are divided according to ethnic background. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if they hear, oh, you speak Venda, so your place will be Shawelo. Mm -hmm. Oh, you speak Zulu. Oh, okay, it's Zola. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, so 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 Wetans always had a way of speaking all different languages that confused uh, the apartheid lawmakers. So, you know, yeah. because they wanted us to be divided so that they can easily rule us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So from yeah. the onset, a place like Soweto prepares you for, like you said, it already politicizes you and also prepares you for some, for some like street wisdom. Yes, definitely. I mean, for example, I was born in an area called Shawelo. From my place to Sir Ramaphosa's place, it's just like uh, walking So he's from, from Soweto? Here. Yeah, it's just like from walking from here to around the corner. I grew up in an area called Orlando West, Villagaz Street, the fam famous Villagaz Street, mm -hmm. which is known for Mandela, for Desmond Tutu, for all these leaders that were there, you mm -hmm. know. And Again, then, Soweto. And in Soweto. And across the road, there will be uh, Robert Sobukwe, the leader of the PAC. So you grow up politicized. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you wake up in the morning and then you find that so-and-so is gone to ex into exile. Mm -hmm. you know? It's interesting. Now, you know, many of our listeners, they know Soweto, yet they don't know it. Yeah. Because maybe they haven't been there, but they know Soweto in terms of how Soweto is very much plays an important role in South Africa. Yes. as a place mm -hmm. and then you've mentioned many names now so yeah it's a mix of yeah. now there's a president yeah. who comes from there yeah how central is soweto in the politics and in the everyday reality of south africa there's a saying that a road into south african democracy starts in soweto you know 
meaning that if you get Sowetans mobilized, mm-hmm. means that you have got all these different ethnic groups mm-hmm. together. Uh, you know, as Africans, in most cases, we tend to group ourselves through uh, ethnic belongings and whatever. Mm-hmm. So in Soweto, that ethnic belonging is blurred. You live under apartheid in the sense that immediately you walk out of your house going to the city, which is Johannesburg. It's a white city. You are not allowed to be there. There was a law actually called Section 10. You are not allowed to linger Mm -hmm. around Johannesburg. So anybody could stop you and then search you and do everything for you. Mm -hmm. So everything that was apartheid, all the laws happened within us. Mm Uh, and then when I talk about people like uh, 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 former President Mandela, for instance, it's not like they were born in Soweto. But for them to be politicized, you know, they had to come to Soweto. To was was that a reason for them to come there specifically? Yes, or exactly. was it like, yeah. it was like or were they, it was, was it something else like, okay, we are going there because there's a likelihood of more opportunity? Firstly, it's about opportunities, actually. You are right. In a sense that Johannesburg, as you, you know, I mean, it's a, a city of gold. Johannesburg, uh, we call it a goal, meaning that the city of gold. So everyone, as I said earlier on, mm-hmm. who is coming into Johannesburg through migrant labor system, come to work in the mines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when you are working there in Johannesburg, the only place that you could go and live in is either Soweto or Alexander, mm-hmm. because these are closer to, uh, to the, the mines. City. Yeah, or mine. Yeah. yeah, Soweto itself is surrounded by five mine shafts. Wow. Yeah. So if you go into Soweto, you will think like there are mountains, mm-hmm. but those are not mountains. Those are mound dumps, you know, mm-hmm. mine dumps. So meaning that we were all put into these mine dumps. Mm-hmm. That's the only place you could live as a black person because you cannot live with the whites, mm-hmm. according to apartheid. Mm-hmm. So if this is the only place that you could live, it means that when you go to work every day, you experience some form of racism, mm-hmm. some form of oppression. You can you could not walk from or take a taxi or or, or a train mm-hmm. from Soweto to go to work in Johannesburg, which is about 10 kilometers, mm-hmm. you know, without having a pass, mm-hmm. you know. Or your white counterparts don't have to have pass. Mm-hmm. And then if you have a white friend, for them to get into Soweto, they have to apply for a permission. Mm-hmm. And then these things conscientize you somehow. Mm-hmm. That's how people became politicized mm-hmm. in this area because mm-hmm. they, they, were, they got the first hand of apartheid, mm-hmm. you know. So it became the base mm-hmm. for different political parties like the PAC, Pan-Africanist Congress, Azabo, those are the popular Black Consciousness Movement, mm-hmm. Steve Biko, you know. Even so, Steve Biko was also... He had to come to Soweto to organize with students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but Atlantis and Atlantestine uh, was banned mm-hmm. into uh, Eastern Cape. Mm-hmm. So, But he had to come... And then organize with people like Tieti Machinini for 1976 a student uprising. Yeah, interesting. So, so the reason he had to come there is because in Soweto, it's easier to organize people that already are experiencing firsthand of this. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. And then these are the people that are, don't care about whether you are Venda, whether you are coming from Malawi, whether you are coming from Mozambique, as long as we have this fighting the same cause. Mm-hmm. Because we brought, all of us were brought here by means of migrant labor system, which is unfair. In other words, every single person in Soweto has some form of 
political consciousness. Yes. yes. Even yeah. the even the so-called deranged mad person that you see yes. in the corner. By the way, we're going to come to that because it's one of the stories I read from your book, um, Soweto Under the Apricot Tree, about this man who, who was uh, deranged and mm-hmm. only to find out later that actually he was rich. Mm-hmm. He was wealthy before, but something happened to him. Mm-hmm. So basically what that story is trying to say is that this person is much more than you. You are seeing right here. Mm-hmm. Even with the way he's behaving, looking deranged and everything, he's had a story before. And I have a feeling that this is also how Soweto is like, there is nobody that you can think, oh, this person is just this person. Somehow that person is is conscious of something politically. And we come back to this um, street wisdom as opposed to literacy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, one of the things I want to ask you is the legacy of Soweto as you have just expounded on now, you know, is a very politically charged space, is diverse, is mm. it prepares you for, for the street. Going from there till now, how has that transformed Soweto? I was in Soweto in 2009 because mm. I spent um, three months uh, in Johannesburg doing the Bag Factory residency. And I, I photographed in Soweto. Mm. And I realized that then there was all this proliferation of the shopping malls coming up there. Business, you know, Black-owned businesses, by the mm. way. Mm. happening then. I was like, wow, this place is looking to be something, you know, that's going to explode into something big. So how has it, how has that evolved yeah. all this years? Yeah, the, the, the thing about it, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. The reason you might have uh, had me using Soweto, I mean, the word township and city interchangeably mm-hmm. is simply because of uh, the, the, uh, something that you have just said. When I was growing up, for instance, around 70s and whatever, the only place that you could go to buy clothes or whatever was going to Johannesburg mm-hmm. or going to the Indian shopping mall called Lenasia. Th- those are the only places that you could go to. Why? Because in Soweto, the shops were like small spaza shops uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. before, you know. and uh, When you say before, what around what year now? Before 2000, actually, mm-hmm. let mm-hmm. me say. But after 2000, we have seen, I think at the moment, this. 35, more than 30 malls. Let me see. I'm, when I'm talking about malls, I'm talking about huge malls mm-hmm. uh, where the cinema inside, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there's big shops, like uh, where, when in South Africa we call big shops, we mean like, I'm just making an example of uh, maybe Edgar's. We have Edgar's in South Africa. It's more like H&M, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So those are big shops for mm-hmm. us, you know, which employ large population of Sowetans. And then we also see Sowetans no longer going to work in the city. Mm-hmm. They work there. Mm-hmm. And then we've seen people, these shops are owned by black people, mm-hmm. you know, and then we see people starting to buy land. Uh, so it's, it has become a city mm-hmm. in a definition uh, that we have given it mm-hmm. and, and a definition that we know fits the cities. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. So coming to politics, politics, yes, people are very much aware. They are very much aware. But by then, during my time, the only political party that one could belong to is either Pan-Africanist Congress, PAC, Azapo, or uh, ANC. Mm-hmm. So they... Uh, 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 Black consciousness was just a movement mm-hmm. you know, by then, but later on, around uh, 2010, it became sort of a political party of some sort. Mm-hmm. So when I, that's when I was growing up. But now we have seen people being even the youngest, even the people that have, you know, you never thought. They, they, they are being politicized because there's other political parties that have come up that are, are allowing the youth, like, for instance, Julius Malema's uh, economic freedom, you know, mm-hmm. 
has made people to be aware. Also, we have DA, uh, mm-hmm. which was formerly, we normally take it as a white political party because it started as a opposition of the apartheid government, but only whites by then. You mm-hmm. know? So we've seen lots of changes. But the reason why Soweto is much more politicized is that, you know, you cannot avoid it. You mm-hmm. cannot avoid the fact that Nelson Mandela stayed in this street. Mm-hmm. You cannot avoid the fact that Pan-Africanist uh, Laibon Mabaso was just like uh, next door, you mm-hmm. know. Cannot avoid that, uh, you know, Robert Subukwe used to stay in Soweto. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are quite a number of people, Desmond to, to Des- uh, and writers like Eskian Pashele, you know, that they stayed there. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't have any choice sometimes. Mm-hmm. Musicians that come. So that's the reason why uh, Soweto stays as the trend setter mm-hmm. in South Africa. So whatever is happening in Soweto, everyone wants to try to copy it. You mm-hmm. know? Although at the moment, you know, you got uh, uh, challenges from other states, which is very good, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, areas, which is very good. But um, the fact that Soweto has got this history and the history of 1976, mm-hmm. of the students, uh, which made the youth to be brave mm-hmm. and say, no, we cannot longer listen to our elders who always want to negotiate on the table let's let's do something mm-hmm. so so it is carrying the country's hope mm-hmm. in a sense that once something is happening there mm-hmm. it's going to be carried out in different parts mm-hmm. so unlike other areas it's because of his its history where it comes from uh, when we think of Kwaito music starting which was very much influential from Soweto you know? mm-hmm. the apartheid government knew that if you are able to control Soweto then you are controlling the rest of South Africa in terms of uh, riot spreading mm-hmm. and all those things so I want to come back to you know how you um, how you grew up mm. I know that you you grew up in a family of like nine ch- um, children. Yeah. And you were like the seventh. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Can you give me a sense of how it was like growing up, you know? <laughs> okay. So so I think it's important for me to paint a picture of the Soweto houses. We, we call it a four-roomed house. So there's a kitchen and then there's a school stove. There's what we call a dining room. And then... There's two bedrooms, actually. Let me say two bedrooms. So imagine this. My father had actually 10 kids, Mm -hmm. but the first one passed away before I was born. Mm -hmm. All the nine boys, my father and mother, of course, Ah. they will sleep. And one wife. Yeah, yeah, one wife. Mm -hmm. They will sleep in in their bedroom. The boys will sleep in another uh, room. Mm -hmm. So we are six of us. We'll all sleep there. And then the girls, which are three of them, they will find uh, places in the is a kitchen or a dining room because uh, we are, it's a this is a patriarchal, unfortunately, a patriarchal family, mm-hmm. whereby uh, girls are expected to wake up early in the morning mm-hmm. and clean. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, it, 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 my father thought it's wise for them to <laughs> to be in the uh, dining room. So that's the kind of growing up uh, I have. And then you grow up bonding with all the family members. But of course, there will be a family member that, you know, you don't bond well. Why? Because they like reading. So when the electricity came or before the electricity came, candle, when we use candle, so the candle will be on for and disturbs your sleep. So this is the brother that you might not like. (laughs) Because he's always reading. (laughs) <laughs> and then he's always laughing at uh, alone when he's reading the mm-hmm. book, you know. And then you wake up, he's still reading. 
Yeah. And then we were trying to sleep. So this is the target, will be the target of mm-hmm. the other boys. Mm-hmm. So we grew up like that. Mm-hmm. So there was a brother who uh, uh, I liked him because he encouraged me to read. Mm-hmm. Because you will be reading something and it will be laughing at night. You wake up at night and then somebody is laughing. You know, the other ones are swearing and then you are the one who is asking, what are you laughing at? Eh, eh, look at what Achebe is saying here because he grew up liking African writer series. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. In, in my home, there was no shortage of African writer series books. Interesting. Buchi Yeah, we, we, his favorite was Nigerian writers and Kenyan writers. Amazing. So it was that your brother? Yeah, that's who made all of that happen. Not even your parents. No, no, no. No, my parents couldn't read. Uh, my mother couldn't read. She cannot read. My my father read a little bit. At, but you know, when you grow up, when you are so many, a father becomes a distant figure of some sort. Mm-hmm. You know. So I, w- I was not that much. We're not that much closer to my. Of course, we're so many. You mm-hmm. know. And then he was always. Working, so mm-hmm. he will always come back home tired and definitely go to his bedroom. You won't see him. Maybe you will only see him on uh, on Sunday. Can we can we uh, yeah. sort of like yeah. mention him, his name? Because I feel Wilson. like it's everything begins with, yeah. began with him. Huh? Yeah, it's Wilson. So it's, w- Wilson, yeah, Wilson Strong. So he passed away in 1989. So they say uh, I was still young. I was uh, yeah, I think 16. You know, mm-hmm. when he passed away. So. There was not that much of a bond mm-hmm. between us because we were so many. You, you know, when you grow up in a house like that, in a small house like that, mm-hmm. with a small yard, mm-hmm. you know, and you are many of you, you are bound to go and play in the streets. Mm-hmm. And on the streets, that's where you, you become close to different kids mm-hmm. who speak different languages. Oh, this one, oh, his father is coming from Mozambique. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. Oh, this one is as far as coming from Lipopo. Okay, this mm-hmm. one as far as Venda. So that's why I grew up speaking, I speak uh, half of each and every South African language, which wow. is about 11, you know? Wow. Yeah. My family will be speaking Zulu. I'm just making an example, Zulu and Shangan. And then you go to the next uh, family, they're speaking Venda, that's next door. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones are speaking Sipedi. Uh, so you only can speak that language inside your house. There's pure language inside your house. But mm-hmm. when you are outside, the language feed one another, you know. And, and this pure language yeah. you speak inside, what is it? It's Totital. Mm-hmm. We call it Totital. So it's a, it's just a colloquial mm-hmm. of a, a different languages. It's interesting that now it becomes pure. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. The pure language of, uh, of Soweto is the one that is actually... Yeah. A collage of of many yes of, of course there will be languages that are dominant zulu became dominant and then sutu became dominant because but of... inside your house the language that you speak inside your house is a three languages so because my kids speak uh, sutu i speak that with my mother and my uh, sisters i speak uh, shangan i can speak zulu the mother tongue could be shangan eh? mm-hmm. it can be shangan but uh, you only speak it inside the house with certain family members. Mm-hmm. And then you go to, uh, just you open your door, you speak a different language, mm-hmm. you know? You go to the streets, now it's a completely different language, mm-hmm. you know? So languages, are, that's what I'm saying, when you are in Soweto, there's no specific, there's no one who can say they speak a specific pure language unless they just arrived from their own rural area or whatever. Or mm-hmm. immediately, I can tell that this one is not from Soweto. Mm-hmm. This one is from Soweto. Because there are certain words that we use mm-hmm. that are influenced by 
all those amalgam of all that amalgam of languages, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, very interesting. Mm. Now let's come back to your mom a little bit. You know, mm. she gave birth to ten yeah. children. Yeah, ten children. What and was then, it like for her? For my, for my mother, is is very uh, traditional, so she's proud of that. You know, for her, it's like I've always wondered what it's like, you know, uh, for a woman to yeah, be able exactly. to do to give birth to a child ten times over. Exactly, and and you know what's amazing is that to her, it's wealth. It's a mm-hmm. symbol of wealth. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, African women. It's a symbol of wealth mm-hmm. that um, oh, these children they are going to look after me in my old age. Mm-hmm. That one is going to marry and I'll have grandchildren, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm the disappointment because I'm not married, you know? <laughs> so, so, but in sisters, they say, oh, that one is going to going to marry that one away. And then, you know, the, the lobolo, what do you call it? Lobolo in English? The money paid to the bride. Yeah, like, uh, you know, the bride price. Yeah, will come to us. Mm-hmm. It will help us somehow, mm-hmm. you know? In our old age, so there's that level of mm-hmm. um, happiness mm-hmm. around that. So I think she's proud of us, very, very much proud of us. Actually, as we talk, uh, we talk a lot, mm-hmm. but some of the expectations are not met. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. like me not married, my sisters having not uh, married, uh, all three of them. What do you think that she'll be most proud of when she now, when you say she's very proud of us? Mm. What do you think exactly that she's that she's proud of? Grandchildren to see her grandchildren, uh, you know, around her because mm-hmm. that's what she likes most. Yeah, I've got kids, so it, so she doesn't I'm, care I'm, that I'm, you're not married. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm okay, you give me grandchildren. I'm forgiven a little bit, but I should have been married. You know, <laughs> okay, that is also something that is still uh, like a comma. Yeah, for, yeah, for you. yeah, exactly. Yeah, you should have been married. Uh, uh, you cannot do this uh, to such an extent. Why I'm saying that to such an extent that at some point she will ask me, "What is your problem?" You know, <laughs> and then uh, when I tell her uh, that I'm not intimate. No, I think your problem maybe is, if it's a problem is finding somebody, I've got a cousin, you know, so they start looking for a cousin for you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> this happened actually very recently uh, when my mother called me and said, do you remember that girl? What, what, and I said, uh, innocently, yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. She's still unmarried. <laughs> you guys, I think, can be <laughs> only to find that this girl is my uncle's girl. <laughs> my uncle's daughter <laughs> yes so so those, and and without considerations that she could be having somebody else yeah she or, could be having someone or, else yeah or different uh, sexual preference mm-hmm. or whatever you mm-hmm. know so, so so that's the that, that, that's my mother she's so traditional and then and you think that she really she looks back now she feels like okay i am happy what i was aiming for when i was younger a yeah. young woman you know wanted to have a future mm. I am happy for the for what I've been able to achieve. Yes, yes, I think yeah. She, 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 she my mother is uh, was born in nineteen thirty. So mm-hmm. and then how old is she? Ninety this year. Wow. Yeah, yeah, ninety. So she's still and she's still good looking. Still, I've got a genes actually. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> because people don't believe I'm forty seven. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, so it's it's her genes. Mm-hmm. And then, but she, you can tell that she would love to see me with somebody traditionally. Mm-hmm. This traditional thing of. She has to be involved in the negotiations of her son's law baller, mm-hmm. which is dowry, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And then uh, she has to be involved, you know, giving some certain kind of rules mm -hmm. to my wife mm -hmm. so that she can work for her. Mm -hmm. You know, those kind of uh, traditional things that older people had, she mm -hmm. still have them. Yeah. And then your sisters, how did they... Actually, I'm more closer to my sisters than my than brother. your Than your, yeah, than than your brothers. brothers. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm very closer to my sisters and my brothers because... We talk about everything. Actually, right now, as I'm here in Germany, the people that are looking after my kids are my sisters, mm -hmm. you know, but I had a choice of taking them to my brothers, you know, because they've got big houses mm -hmm. and whatever. But I still said, okay, my sisters, because I know they know my, we, we these are the people that I talk to every time. Mm -hmm. Even when I find a new relationship, I call, hey, sisters. Interesting, interesting. Now, how does all of this translate into becoming a writer? My writing story, my coming into a writer story is a, is a very interesting journey. So the journey started in um, when I went to the university mm -hmm. in 1994. Mm -hmm. I grew up wanting to either be a journalist mm -hmm. or a lawyer. Why? Because under apartheid, those are the only jobs, careers that a black person could pursue. You can either become a journalist, a lawyer, a nurse, a teacher, a policeman, you know, all those kind of, uh, those are the jobs that you can get. You mm -hmm. could not be an engineer because that's a white space. Mm -hmm. you, know? you could not be something else. You could be a doctor, you know, mm -hmm. but it's a very special thing to be a doctor as a black man. Mm -hmm. So when I grew up, Along the street, I mean, I was influenced by uh, to choose a career. It's not something that you wa always wanted, you know. You mm -hmm. didn't know what you want to do mm -hmm. because your role models are already teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, they are lawyers. And then why is this person a lawyer who is uh, influencing you? It's because I grew up around the time whereby there was lots of political riots in Soweto. And then when there's political riots, people are bound to be activists where lots of locked into jail. But always there was a lawyer along the, our street who used to have uh, these people, he will go and release these people, you know, every time. So I thought, okay, this guy is doing a lot and he had very beautiful wife and beautiful children and a big house, one of the biggest in Soweto, you know. And I thought, wow, I want to be like that because I was, that's our definition of success. So mm -hmm. I want to be like this guy. Mm -hmm. So Obviously, my career uh, choice was bending towards him. Being a lawyer. Yeah. And then, but there was another guy who was very famous, who lived on the other side of the street, mm -hmm. who used to be a journalist, a mm -hmm. sports journalist. Mm -hmm. So every soccer player, any person that we saw on TV would always come to him. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, he would be always interviewing, he's always on their paper. So it was popular, but it was poor. The other one on the other side was a lawyer, not popular, but popular in a political sense. Yeah, but uh, but, but but also well yeah. to but well to do. Yeah. So when I went to the university, which was formerly white institution, because mm -hmm. in South Africa we had these divisions. So there were black uh, universities, there were white universities. So I went to, I was lucky to go to a white, what used to be a white only institution. Because on that year, all of a sudden, the floodgates were opened for us mm -hmm. uh, as black people to go and study in those, you know, institutions. Vets, UCT, mm -hmm. uh, Natal, and um, Rhodes were the yeah. institutions. Mm -hmm. So when I went to VET, I didn't know what I wanted to, to do. I, I mean, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer, but they couldn't take me uh, with my grades mm -hmm. to study 
for law, mm-hmm. you know? So what happens is that they told me that I could only study for BA, mm-hmm. uh, but I could change later on to study for law if I start, still want it. Mm-hmm. So I well I said okay as long as I'm in the white institution I'm going to sponsor me they say yes mm-hmm. and then they gave me money I studied mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so I studied BA measuring in now African literature why did I take African literature I took African literature simply because I realized that I have to do well in this white institution and then uh, what happens if I don't do well in this white institution I might be chucked out so I decided okay this African literature course, definitely I will pass it because I've been studying it unaware at home because I asked them, okay, you know, there's this orientation week during the, before you go into the university where you have to choose a course that you want. And then uh, they will put all these courses and then they said, okay, which one can you take? And I said, African literature. Okay, what are the books? And then they gave me the books of uh, Chebe and then, uh, you know, Ngugiwa Thiong, Aikwe, Amam, Bushi, Amateur. These are the courses. First year we do this. Uh, second year is this. Third year is this. And I said, okay, I read all these books. <laughs> it means that minus one course. And then... Um, okay, so you didn't even know that this wasn't supposed to you know, make you write? Never, never. Because it was I, more was about just thinking, studying yeah, the literature. Studying literature mm-hmm. because it's the course that can be easiest in the institution where I've seen many people flanking and going back to the township, you know, mm-hmm. and then uh, they're academically excluded, they are financially excluded. So I thought, okay, I have, uh, you know, a good examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and is it like the same? Because in Nigeria, it was also growing up, it was the same where, you know, you sort of like acquire some sort of like street cred. Yeah. If you always come back and say, I'm in this Susan So University, and then you come back home and you just, you know, you flaunt exactly. the fact that you exactly. are in this university, that university. Even the and girls you are that regarded to undermine exactly. men, they come they to take you, you seriously. <laughs> and then uh, even your family, it's uplifted, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, for the fact that, I, I'll give you an example. My brother was doing um, medicine, as I say. Our home became known as the, that home of a doctor. Uh-huh. But he was doing only first year. <laughs> and then he flunked <laughs> the second year. He couldn't even tell uh, the family because it will be, a shame for the family who is now <laughs> <laughs> said to be, you know, a house of a doctor. Mm-hmm. Now the doctor is flanked. What happened? You know? Yeah. So that street credibility is not only for you only. It's for you. It's for your family. family. It's for your it's for your friends. It's a passport to many things to respect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a family upliftment in some sort. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of that you cannot measure in mm-hmm. money. You mm-hmm. know? It's mm-hmm. just there. You yeah. know? So when I went to vets, for instance, it was like that house of a doctor and a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know, and I felt good because I told you earlier on that the one that used to be popular amongst my, was my brother who used to play soccer. It was Seven's house. Mm-hmm. But now the FSS, oh, that house where Seven's house with uh, the doctors and the, the doctor. And, and, and the, the lawyer. And the lawyer, you know. And then when I went to, to vet, I made it a point that I had to pass this uh, first year uh, so that the family credibility goes. Well, yeah, uh, will, will increase. Increase every time, you know. Uh, second year, at vet, there was a restructuring of the law courses. Remember, I wanted to do law, uh, but I couldn't get in because of the grades. Uh, and they said, you can no longer do law as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. You have to do it as a postgraduate 
after doing BA or whatever, you have to have a background of a particular degree. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter which degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I decided to continue with African literature mm-hmm. until I finished. So when I finished, I decided, let me go back and, and, do, law. and do law. That was now 1997. Mm-hmm. And then I did law at VEDS. I failed some courses. But um, something happened uh, to me, actually. I uh, lost a very close friend of mine who committed suicide by jumping from, you know, a building. Mm -hmm. He was a student as well. Mm -hmm. And during our graduation week, Mm -hmm. I I was just like messed up. Mm -hmm. And I decided maybe uh, I used to have lots of, uh, you know, closer to people who are in the highest power vets. And they decided, oh, can we take you to the therapist? They they suggested therapist. But for me, it, it didn't work. So I decided I should move to a new province mm-hmm. and continue law. So I went to, that's when I went to UCT, University of Cape Town, mm-hmm. only to find that this is a very strange area. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's more like, it's un-South Africa. It's not like South Africa. It's, you are, I was in a completely different space. It's my first time to de- travel such a longer distance, mm-hmm. two hours on a plane, going to a place where I see now white people you know, around the city, it looked like Europe around that time, mm-hmm. you know. So I thought even the university itself was too wide. Mm-hmm. Imagine I come from Soweto where the language is like the language of the street. There, the language was completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are closer, you have to speak a particular closer, you know, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And uh, although I could speak these languages, I could speak half of uh, the languages. Lots of uh, people from Basutu speaking Sisutu, I could I can speak Sisutu. Mm-hmm. Botswana speaking Botswana, I could speak Botswana, but a little bit, you know, uh, not a little bit, uh, enough for conversations mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. So I became lonely. Mm-hmm. I no longer concentrated on my law books. Instead of reading law books, I started to read a lot of literature. Mm-hmm. But I still passed uh, until I did until fourth year. When I was about to graduate, oh, here's the course that I failed. And I said, I'm not going back to that. (laughs) So what can I do? What is the easiest thing that I can do? Let me write about this experience. And then writing about the experience, I thought that's when I wrote Dog It Dog. Mm -hmm. But it's not the experience of my own alone mm-hmm. you know so it's it's my experience yes some of the things i've observed but i made it as if i'm physically involved with them you know mm-hmm. like the thing of um a, a going to a bursary office so i started to write about university itself the challenges of the university that's why dog it dog is still the, one of the my best sellers because when you look into the movement that is going on in South Africa at the moment mm-hmm. called Fees Must Fall. Mm-hmm. Doggy Dog is about Fees Must Fall. Mm-hmm. So I talked about issues that we as black people face at the university using my own experience and using other people's experience, combining it and made it, making it mine. Yeah, what was it like, you know, writing the first novel? What was the process like? Was it like, okay, you wake up, you write, and then you come back, you read it, and then you continue again? Or was it like... It was written over a, a period of three years, I guess, you know? It was a time before Facebook and whatever, mm-hmm. around 1999, mm-hmm. whereby Cape Town was becoming very much more and more alienating for me mm-hmm. in terms of sometimes you don't have money to go home. Uh, UCT, you know, it's there by the mountain. 
and then there's no life is within a black within a white suburb so the only space you could go is that pub it closes at uh, around that particular time you cannot go to the city because at six o'clock, six p.m., there's no transport going back to UCT. Even going to the townships like Guguletu and wherever, you have to think about transport going back. So this is something that never happened in while I was in Jobek. So mm-hmm. it became alienating to such mm-hmm. an extent that I decided to buy a computer. Mm-hmm. With that computer, I could easily. Uh, 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 it started when I started emailing with friends back in Jobek. And then we reminded each other of, you know, things we used to do. And they were laughing when I was writing to them. Oh, remember this? Remember? I, I took all those emails and I said, okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, one of the people that keep the diary. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Interesting. So That's a... I, I keep... So you, you, you yeah, also write so a diary. Yeah. And then... And, and even up until now? Yeah, up until now. I've got diaries from 1990. And then I read them when I'm, bo- I'm bored. So that's why during lockdown, I was not that much bored. I was reading. So <laughs> I take some of my diaries with me. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, just for reference. So when you write from a diary, say, remember on this day? It was like, oh, how do you remember that? Mm-hmm. So that lifts your spirit. That oh, you, yeah. But that's not how it happened. It happened this way. So you'll be having a conversation with a friend. Mm-hmm. So, and then I decided... I have to write about this. Imagine I was coming from law background mm-hmm. at this point in time. Mm-hmm. At I, that point now, what were you aiming for? Were you now, have you now decided, look, I want to become a writer? But there's nothing else that you can do. Maybe if I publish this thing, like yesterday somebody posted something, uh, I mean, my, a friend of mine said, hey, look at what uh, Dan Brown has made with this book. And I said, oh, maybe writing, I could be rich. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to make money out mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to hell with law, because mm-hmm. I was thinking that I will make money through law. But mm-hmm. now I found something that is more nice that I can be famous and then make money through it, you know? <laughs> so that's how I, 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 that's what encouraged me mm-hmm. to write this fake manuscript. Mm-hmm. And coming from law background, I tried to write to, uh, you know, to impress, not to express myself. Mm-hmm. So you'll find a lot of law things like um, mutatis mutandis, you know, mm-hmm. all those law terms would be there mm-hmm. because I was trying to impress. Mm-hmm. And also I didn't know anything about the landscape of, um, you know, writing landscape. Mm-hmm. Actually. So I was writing, but thinking that I'll be famous. And if I sell one book, I can be very big. Mm-hmm. And then by then the way, the writers that were making lots of money in South Africa, you talk about Jim Kutze winning this, you talk about Andre Brang, you talk about, you know, it, different kind of writers that were winning. Reading all that encouraged me to become, <laughs> to concentrate on this writing. So mm-hmm. I wrote this fat manuscript, sent it, and then it came with one line, unpublishable. Remember there were lots of <laughs> <laughs> And then somebody, because it came from three readers, somebody else said, you sent off the manuscript to, to some publishers. Yeah, yeah. It's a long story in itself. Uh, but then long and short of it is that during my time, we didn't have networks that we're having now that younger generation of writers is having mm-hmm. in terms of uh, they can easily Google for Nick and then uh, send me uh, or Facebook me or mm-hmm. whatever, DM, mm-hmm. whatever thing, you know. By then, it will be a writer is the most respected thing. Yeah. So how do you... And inaccessible. 
Yeah, and inaccessible. How do I, I remember I um, I came into Jobek, the first writer I saw, and I was like, I'm seeing God, yeah. <laughs> because I read this work, you know, I read the beautiful ones are not yet born. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then it comes to Jobek, I just want to have one word with him, but it's hogged by different kind of people. So I thought, wow, these are more like presidents, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know? I, it never came to me that I can easily access their emails and whatever. Mm-hmm. So I decided I didn't know who a publisher, what a publisher is. Mm-hmm. I remember I come from a law background. I relied on newspapers. So on the newspapers, there was lots of books that were reviewed on the last page. And then one day I checked this reviewer and then thinking that a newspaper publisher, it's also a newspaper book. <laughs> you know. And then I went straight, because I live in Jobek, so all these uh, newspapers, big newspapers are based there. So mm-hmm. I can see. So I just simple rocked uh, into their offices with their manuscripts. I want to talk to this guy. He, he, he reviewed the book. So I want to ask him to tell me where I can send my manuscript. Even then, I couldn't talk to him face to face. So it was like the guy up there, no, I'm not a, I'm not a publisher. So give me the names of the publishers. And, oh, okay. There's Quella. There's, he's talking from the phone. I'm talking from the reception. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the same office. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, that's when I decided, Aquela sounds black. Uh-huh. Let me go <laughs> and send my manuscript to them. Only to find that Quella is white using a black name. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that, so that's uh, that's my journey. At some point, I was I was like, yes, okay, black, black. black. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. No. And then you go there, and then you find that from the reception, you know, it's white. But they are using a black name, and they say, "Okay, uh, they might. This ones, I, I don't think they will take my manuscript because I thought they were black. You know, I could easily, if they were black, I could easily talk to them. If they ask me what the manuscript is all about, I can easily, you know, where English is 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 a bit uh, trouble. You know. Yeah, okay. but then didn't, didn't just wait to sort of like senses say to you, well, there must be something in this name. No, no, yeah, exactly. But imagine uh, this is. In Cape Town. Quella is in Cape Town. Ah. So I had to take a train. Mm. I had already left Cape Town. Now that I had to go back again. Train, go back again, be carrying this manuscript, hoping that this is my passport to riches. Mm-hmm. A 24-hour train from Cape Town on a third-class mm-hmm. carriage. That, that very slow one? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then going to an office, you knock, hoping that you'll hear black people talking. Uh, because it's written Quella books mm-hmm. and Quella because it's a music, it's a, it's a music genre in South Africa, mm-hmm. you know, penny flute, you mm-hmm. know, so that uh, they cannot use a name without knowing what it is. Mm-hmm. Only to find that the opposite is the <laughs> From the first reception, you knock and you know, what do you want? You know, and they start in Africans for that matter, any white. And I decided, okay, let me tell them. And then I tell them, I told them, lucky enough, they were so receptive. And then there was a guy who uh, was doing an intern there, who just came, graduated from the university at uh, Norwich, you mm-hmm. know. So coming to visit his girlfriend in South Africa, but in the meantime, a young guy. So in the meantime, he just wants to find, uh, you know, uh, do an internship just to read South African manuscripts so that he can know South Africa. Mm-hmm. 
And all of a sudden, they just assign me there and I listen to this guy, what is he saying? Mm-hmm. I see if there's a yeah. way you can work with him. And then me being talkative, you know, yeah. ah, let's go for a beer and then I'll tell you. And then we just talked about it and I gave you the manuscript, gave him the manuscript, he read it. He didn't like it at first, of course. Because of all those terms, all, all those, those terms. jargons. Yeah, all those <laughs> jargons and whatever. It didn't, but... Cause he when, was able to, yeah, yeah. That's why at the moment I'm using that experience uh, to edit books because mm-hmm. you cannot simply dismiss a story like that. You, mm-hmm. know? you have to there's something be able to extract that you can extract and the person can focus on. Mm-hmm. So he told me to fo- focus on this story about the events and then because it was like a different, everywhere yeah. here and there. And I'll tell you how is it was everywhere because it became three books. They asked me to edit it out. Mm-hmm. I didn't throw away the the other pages, mm-hmm. the other uh, chapters that they said. I made After Tears. After of Tears, out the of the next, Yeah, the next And book. then which one again? And then I made that, Way Back Home. Way Back Home, okay. Yeah. These are the stories that I've written uh, haphazardly, piling, piling, thinking it's one book. Mm-hmm. And then when the uh, publishers said to me, uh, no, this one we won't publish it. I said, I'm recycling that for you. Yeah, so that's how the journey uh, came. I had to wait a lot. Kept on doing, kept on doing then until Dog It Dog came. Uh, the manuscript was accepted, mm-hmm. you know. So I might have been rejected, I think, maybe around 25 times. Wow. Yeah. I mean, rewriting. So some were not uh, rejection. Uh, rejection, maybe maybe I've, I was rejected around seven times, six times. Mm-hmm. And then now became a rewriting, rewriting about 25, 20, 25 times. Within the, the Quilla? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That manuscript, the book was set both in Soweto and in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. So it, it was about the journey of a person who used to be my journey, of course, which is fictionalized mm-hmm. to a larger extent. So a journey of a person who was studying at VET, at VET University. And then, so it talked about VETs and everything, fees must fall around that time. Mm-hmm. It was not the term around that time. Mm-hmm. But the, it talks about, the, the first book, of course, talks about... Uh, how uh, the difficulty of uh, as a black student to be immediately accepted in a white institution, mm-hmm. formerly white institution, without any proper guidance. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, it happened all of a sudden. Oh, now you can apply at VET University and being taken. You mm-hmm. go there. For the first time, I'm taught by a white person. For the first time in my culture, when I have to talk to an elderly person, I don't have to look at them in the eyes. But here, I'm forced to look at them in the eyes. Otherwise, the whites will think you are lying if mm-hmm. you don't look at them in the eye. Mm-hmm. So it becomes difficult, that transition from your own tradition to... to for the first time, you hear that a cat, somebody can ask to be excused out from the exam room because a cat has died. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from the first time uh, to hear a white person... Because <laughs> a cat has died. Yeah, yeah. It and, was, and it's such an, uh, yeah. an emotional episode. And, and you calm yourself and then you say, uh, my mother has died. For a person not understanding that, uh, for me, a mother is not my biological mother alone. Yeah. So it's a person or everyone. So if a mother of so-and-so who I used to play with in that street has died, it, it, it warrants me to go. Yeah. So if a, now the grandfather of that person has died, and I, I, when I come to you, I will say my grandfather has died. I won't say a grandfather of so-and-so and so, you know, has died. And then you tell this person that my father has died. And then the following, uh, you know, uh, two weeks later, you say, my father has died. And say, <laughs> how many fathers do you have? 
You know, don't <laughs> lie. You are lying. Yeah. And then when you are talking to them, you don't look at them in the face. They call me Andrew. And then you say, uh, Mr. So-and-so, because it's respectful <laughs> in your own. Yeah. You cannot call an elderly person by their first name. Mm-hmm. You know, so you call them Andrew. You know, there's some disconnect in between you two. I was trying to show that the reason many black people fail in their so-called white institutions is not because they are, you know, they, they, they are stupid or academically challenged. It's because our challenges are so many. It is a new space for us, mm-hmm. to some of us, and then we're expected to perform in the same way as other white uh, students that the institution was formally meant for them. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, those are the things that my first book was talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, the challenges. But I decided, no, that is also important, me talking about the challenges at home, the challenges of being naked and then being a person who is coming from, who who, who carry the hopes of the family, you know, uh, uh, to be is socially uh, elevated, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, I carry those hopes. I cannot fail. But mm-hmm. what happens if you fail? Mm-hmm. So that's why my second book talks about those kind of things. That after after, after tears. tears, yeah, yeah. So what happens when you fail? You yeah. know, you crushing the hopes of the family as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So that's why I use the character that doesn't tell the family that they yeah. fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they try to. Uh, 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 pretend to be a lawyer mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah the thing that i find very interesting about your work is you know like i've said before in the introduction you have all the all the attributes of a, a rigorous literary work done articulation narrative you know name it oh thank you um but at the same time it's like the language and the way of writing is put at the service mm. of it's more it's more about trying to reach or trying to articulate street wisdom as opposed to literacy That's how I feel it. Now it reminds me of like a tradition that we've always had, which is something that eventually was called the African popular literature, Mm. which was coming from the Onichamake literature. literature, And these writers were writing for a local audience. They were really trying to reach a local audience. Mm. They were not trying to be international. Yes. Yes. And you, while many writers didn't make it out of that way that place of writing you know with someone like Cyprian Equency being mm. an exception mm. you realize that it gave birth or it gave foundation for looking at or what we now call today African popular mm. literature mm. for someone who's writing from Soweto you know you've already said that everyone is somehow politicized mm. I have a feeling that you that your work is trying to reach people on that level of Every person that I know in this place that I come from is politicized already. Yeah. I do not need to write for a particular, you know, people like a, a group of people who are literate. Yes. I need to just express myself because I feel like everyone will understand what I'm trying to say. Yes. Um, can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, thanks for bringing that up. Before I speak about it, I would like to something that is related to that. So my books, both Doggy Dog and After Tears, um, also published in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So for a publisher from the U.S. asked me to wrote to my publisher saying that, um, sorry, we really love this book mm-hmm. uh, because it has got something that is unique about South Africa. Mm-hmm. And then I think maybe it will get people to know South Africa a bit more, the other side of South Africa that uh, we need to know. Mm-hmm. But the only problem with it is that 
is the language. Mm -hmm. Can we change several things like Shebin mm -hmm. in the book? Can we say speak easy? Uh, it talks about the leaf. Speak easy. Yeah, this is speak easy, the Shebin where people... Yeah, I know, I know Shebin, but how is it yeah, now so, speak so, easy? Yeah, so in the US, they call it speak easy, I guess. Okay. So can we... Uh, 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 he talks about a, a person opening a tab. Can we call it a faucet? We talk about... He talks about a person uh, taking a, a lift. Can we call it an escalator? And I say, <laughs> that's no longer my story. Yeah. Because my story, the purpose of my story is to edutain. While you are entertained, I have to educate you about where I come from, mm -hmm. where we speak. Mm -hmm. I want my characters to sound exactly the way we do mm -hmm. because it I'll be doing a lot of injustice. Mm -hmm. So coming back to your question, why is that important to me? Is because my source of stories, I, I would say I'm only the, the narrator of the stories, but the stories themselves, they come from the people. So... Whenever I talk, that's why my characters are believable. I find my characters being believable and whatever. It's because whenever you hear my characters talking from a Shebin, it's because I've been there as well, you know? So I think it has to do with what kind of a researcher I am. I'm a more of a field researcher than a desktop. So when I do a story, when I write a story, I like walking around if a, if a particular character is going to come from the township, is going to be a toti, what we call a, a thug in the township. I have to observe that thug or talk to them, you know? I don't have to research. I don't like only relying on the desktop research. So I go a mile a bit to know how they talk, how they pause when they are talking. And then uh, what makes them to, be, uh, to think they are more important than the other, their mm -hmm. demeanor and whatever. So I transcribe that into my dialogue. So there's this thing that is happening, like like I said, both ends, mm, mm. you know, where you read the story. Like even some of your essays in yes. the Johannesburg Review of Books, yeah. especially like the one about Soweto, yeah. uh, where you wrote almost like a, a Biavanga-esque Kind oh, of. <laughs> oh, okay. It, it, the most unpopular essays of, the, yeah. of them all. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's almost like it reminds me of how Vyavanga wrote about how to write about Africa, yeah, or how to read yeah. about Africa. Yes, yes, yes. It reminds me of that. It, it has a sort of like a, like a manual of instruction hmm. Um, hmm. feel to it where you were able to take, but I think it was so broken down and entered into many aspects and um, fleshed out some things. Yeah. It, yeah, it went from the mundane, from the banal yeah. to yeah. some of the codes, little yeah. codes of like when you talk about how this character becomes friends with or a white person who is new yeah. in, in a mm. space in Soweto mm. becomes mm. friends with this guy. Yeah, it is because each and every one of them, both of them, are actually trying to exploit yeah. each other's ignorance. Yes, of yes. the white person yeah. being new there wants yeah. to be this person who listens to this guy. Yeah. And we see that everywhere. We yeah. see that kind of way of like, oh, I'm, you know, yeah. and then the person now comes back and exploits that opening. Yeah. And I, then, actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, and just before I forget, I think when I was writing that, I, I, I used to have a friend of mine from Japan, mm -hmm. a, a lady friend. So in South Africa, for instance, everyone that looks like her is, is Chinese, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in, in the township. Mm -hmm. So at some point I warned her, but 
And she said, I know it's fine. But I could tell that she's trying hard mm-hmm. to tell the people that I'm not Chinese. Because mm-hmm. everyone will say, yeah, 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 you Chinese. And then you go, you Chinese. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know how people are in mm-hmm. the township. Mm-hmm. It's like, although they were not meaning it in a harmful way or mm-hmm. whatever, it's irritating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's irritating. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way as whites always mistake our names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... That was inspired by that particular incident when I had to write that. One thing that I've always had in mind to ask you in relation to your yeah. work, especially because you are writing from a narrative, from a reality yeah. that is racially charged. Yes, yes. Definitely. And you seem to have a way, like you've already said, you want to make this edutainment. Yeah. But, you know, when you bring that entertainment part of it to something that is highly politically charged, that people take really serious. Yeah. There is a tendency that you are treading on the line of taking it lightly yeah. or not taking it serious yeah. enough. The way people people might actually, it's mm-hmm. almost like, you know, with comedians. Yeah. Take, for example, Trevor Noah. Yeah. Um, sometimes he might even be accused that, mm. you know, making those jokes about Africa and South mm. Africa, sometimes they be going too far because he's taking it lightly. Whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Hasn't that been a concern for you that you write about these things yeah. and you become popular through writing about these things? And you sometimes make jokes out of it. Yeah. Sometimes you laugh at yourself and you laugh at the place you come from. Yeah. Has it not been something that someone has sort of like confronted you with or even a, like a review of books have confronted you with and say, you know, why are you treating this in a, in, in, in a flimsy manner? Why are you making it shallow? Actually, yeah. actually, with review of books, that essay is very much unpopular because people came. They, they read it in a different way, mm-hmm. and understandably so. Mm-hmm. Some thought I'm playing, uh, I'm writing it because Johannesburg Review of Books is owned by whites. I was trying to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to uh, uh, work with the whites, you know. So, so I was called lots of them with that particular essay. Mm-hmm. But in terms of novels, no, mm-hmm. because novels is my space, it's my interpretation of things. So the difference is that when you write within a novel, you are fictionalizing a reality. Mm-hmm. And when you are fictionalizing a reality, it depends on the interpretation of a person who is reading it. Mm-hmm. Because interpretation is about, it's, it's rewriting mm-hmm. and, re, and, and reimagining space mm-hmm. in itself. So when we talk about uh, the fiction part of it, I'm not confronted. Mm-hmm. So because the Johannesburg Review of Books is an essay, a nonfiction essay, People tend to think that, tend not to understand the difference between my fiction writing and my non-fiction writing. Mm -hmm. Only a section of black people will understand and say, no, 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 I'm just trying, uh, I was just trying to write to satirize our way of life, Mm -hmm. the way we live in Soweto. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think, Mm. I think that, you know, when you read read that essay, there is nothing demeaning about it. It already gives a sense of... Mm. It gives a sense of people who have their own way of being. And what mm. you are doing with that essay is to assert it as it is there. Yeah. I think that within this whole tension, racial tension, that what is important to remember is that what race or, uh, or racism mm. does mm. oftentimes is to negate or to dismiss or to... No matter, no matter how the reality is, yeah. whether it is dirty, poor, or whatever, 
it is to negate it. Yeah. It does not acknowledge that it is there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Acknowledgement is not there. Yeah. You know, we have problems in Africa. Mm. Anybody who goes mm. to write beautiful romantic stories about Africa is as dangerous as someone who goes to say bad things about it. Yeah. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. However, what we are trying to, you know, make, you know, what we are trying to emphasize and all trying to get people to understand about owning your own agency to tell your story is allowed my reality to exist. Yes. Yes. It's very much allow it to exist. Yeah. It's very much important. Because within that reality, often times you see it from the outside, but there's a reason why mm. there's all those stories, you know, under the apricot tree. Yeah. Exactly. It is, and those reasons are valid because yeah. it is our experience. Yeah. I come from a country where which has got lots of trouble, more especially things that need to be talked about. I mean, the number one thing is the xenophobia and Afrophobia in South Africa. Mm -hmm. It's there. It exists, mm -hmm. you know. And then uh, it's something that we cannot downplay. Mm -hmm. And I remember at some point I nearly missed a flight by going into the, this underground train called uh, how train in South Africa going to the airport. Mm -hmm. It was during the time when the xenophobia was about to start. Mm -hmm. And then uh, these people, uh, police stopped me. I was going with somebody, I think, who was going to the airport as well, a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. He's darker than me. They just searched me like, you know. But when it came to a friend, they had to they waited there, you know, uh, uh, had to remove everything because they couldn't believe he's South African, you know? And then I asked why. And then they, they had to make him count from, uh, you know how they work in xenophobia? They would make you count one to ten mm -hmm. in Africans because Africans is part, it's a South African thing. Mm -hmm. And then if you cannot count, uh, it means that you, to them, you were not South African. And the friend couldn't count because... They were never exposed to Africans, mm -hmm. you know. So I wrote about this experience mm -hmm. at some point. And then somebody said to me, ah, you are exaggerating. Ah, you are going to, you are trying to sell South Africa wrong to what, 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 what you know. And mm -hmm. I said, I'm not selling any country. I'm talking about my reality. Exactly. I think yes. that we have to also question where all this sense of legality mm -hmm. or illegality is coming from. Mm -hmm. um, now there is a tension between street wisdom and literacy. Yes. But who actually put that tension there? It's a white space that did that. Exactly. You know? exactly. So why would yeah. we be, no. be, be, be talking about, oh, you are talking down Soweto yeah. Um, yeah. And, and saying that we are illiterate. Mm. That's not the point. The point is we are saying that this street wisdom is um, something that we should own I, and, and acknowledge that it is something that is ours. I'm glad you mentioned that. And also the, the fact that, you know, um, if you feel like your Soweto is represent, misrepresented, through my books, write your own, mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. own version. Yeah. And then the version that will counter, and in that way, we'll have multiple interpretations, yeah, interpretations, which is very much important for us to learn. And then when you look at it as yeah. a body, then it yeah. becomes one, they're all doing one and the same thing. Actually. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that, that's very, that's very, very interesting. Mm. Talking about that, I have three of your books now. Yeah. All autographed. Yeah, yeah. The first one, beginning with uh, Way Back Home. Yeah. Um, that you gave me in 2015 oh, in Dresden. That was the first Dresden. one. Oh. And then I have Soweto Under the, the Apricot Tree, tree which That's I have what read. I remember. That yeah. was Dresden. I forgot about yeah. it. <laughs> See? Now, you have now I have Black Tax. Yeah. And this one seems serious. Yeah. Serious. Like, yeah. this is not joking at all. Yeah. It has contributions from 26 authors, yeah. South African authors, yeah. writing about 
Like you said, colloquial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> colloquial expression called black tax. Yeah. So can you speak about black tax a bit? Yeah. So different countries, for instance, have got a, a different interpretation or different term for mm-hmm. different things. Mm-hmm. In uh, in the US, I've realized that black tax might mean something different from what it means to us. Mm-hmm. So to us, black tax simply means, for me, from my point of view, because I've got an essay here, it's a responsibility. Mm-hmm that we have or the duty that we have to look after our own families, you know, our own family members that are not as gifted economically as we are. Like, for instance, if I have a sister whose children have never uh, want to go to school, but they don't have cash, if I'm able to help my sister, mm-hmm. uh, let me help her. You know, mm-hmm. and then put the money, whether I have a family or not, but I have to do that, you know. So that's what we call black tax. As I indicated earlier on, most South Africans belong to, uh, uh, they've got dual homes in the city and in the rural area. Maybe it happens in other areas, I don't know, where you have a family in Lagos, but also in a village somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So in, around that time of October, people are deciding, I'm not going home. Mm-hmm. Or I've just been to a funeral at home and they expect me to go back home again. I cannot do that. I don't have the money, you know? Uh, my father had died uh, uh, so-and-so, you know, I cannot do that. Or, or my brother is getting married, so I cannot waste money now, go home, because there's black tax in December. So in December, that's when family, in most cases, meet, spend time together. But there will be family members that will be expecting other family members that are well off to compensate them uh, for how they've raised you when you are still young, you know. Uh, they will ask you to uh, bring me a whiskey, a bottle of whiskey. Uh, somebody say, ah, oh, do me this, uh, give me 1,000 rands. Oh, put gas uh, uh, in my car, you know. So around that time, it's when people start talking about not going home mm-hmm. because there's a pressure at home. People think at home think they can afford, yet they cannot afford. And it's difficult for them mm-hmm. to tell. So there was something trending I've been following since 2013. And then um, then we talked to with Annie, the publisher of Jonathan, Jonathan Ball, who said, oh, let's write something about that, you know? And then I decided that I should get people from different perspectives. So I looked at people in terms of age, in terms of gender, in terms of ethnicity, and in terms of experience. So you know, I've got journalists, I've got former ambassadors of different people, you know, I've got um, actors and stuff like that, you know, so that when we talk about this issue, we talk from different angles mm-hmm. about whether you consider, because uh, the word itself, black tax, has got a negative connotation. It's, mm-hmm. it's more like tax it simply means that you are coerced to do something. Mm-hmm. But are we coerced when we do something out of our heart for the family? Mm-hmm. And then did the family feel the same? The people that have done something for you to help you, mm-hmm. did they feel the same as if you are forcing them to, they're being forced to do this? Mm-hmm. You know? So that's what the essays all are all about. For instance, uh, uh, one of the essays was about a father who, who had just passed away and he was well known in the family. Mm-hmm. So the family wanted to bury him nicely so that, you know, to maintain that reputation within the, you know, within the community, mm-hmm. even after his death. You, you know, I don't know whether in Nigeria we have this thing of uh, viewing of the cops. You know, mm-hmm. when somebody has died, 
and then there will be a queue of people yeah, coming yeah. to view. Yeah. This person who, who wanted to contribute and they said to me, you know, at my home, I'm just from, my father has just passed away. You know what happened? We were expected to buy a perfume, which is very expensive. I think around 20 something thousand. I'm not sure about those mm-hmm. things, you know? We are supposed to to dress him with a watch, expensive watch, Rolex. Really? We're expecting to dress him with an expensive suit, his Jeju Armani or whatever thing it is, you know? So that people, when you are viewing, you can smell that this man is going down, but he was Okay, this, that's a bit, like, uh, you a bit know? extreme. Huh? Yeah, but so this person was talking about when they couldn't, uh, uh, afford that. Afford that. Mm-hmm. And then they now became a black sheep in the family. Mm-hmm. The family members say, ah, no, no, this one doesn't want to join the family. No, they see themselves as a, you know, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, there are necessary kind of black tax mm-hmm. and unnecessary. unnecessary. Th- th- that's how the debate from uh, 2013 when I was following it, mm-hmm. it's always around those issues of being abused by the family sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that's where this all doing the is it a burden or go or, to? Yeah. So, so again, it, the answer is somewhere in between, it's right? In between. It depends on you. Some talk about church leaders uh, expecting you to pay 10% because why they helped you to get a bursary mm-hmm. on your first year. Mm-hmm. You know. So is that Ubuntu or is it a, a, a is it a burden? A burden. Yeah. So that's what they're talking about. Most of the young people find it a burden. Mm-hmm. But then when does it become an Ubuntu or tax investment? Is it mm-hmm. where you begin to think of the need to build a sort of uh, generational wealth? Exactly what is written in this book, that we need a generational wealth. And then uh, that's why some of the elder generation that have contributed in the book talk about the apartheid system mm-hmm. that only allowed men to work, mm-hmm. not women, mm-hmm. you know? And then uh, uh, how it uh, contributed mm-hmm. towards our poverty. Mm-hmm. It's in, it engineered a burden mm-hmm. that we're facing, a, a burden in the sense that we were unable to create generational wealth because we have to start from the bottom all the time. Mm-hmm. I have to start by building, uh, buying land mm-hmm. for my parents. Meanwhile, the land has been taken by the apartheid system. Mm-hmm. If ever the land was not taken, I would build on that land mm-hmm. instead of starting to buy from exactly. it. You know, this has been socially engineered. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why when in South Africa at the moment, we talk about affirmative action, like for instance, EFF says, Malema says, we have to take the land without compensation because it was taken from us. Is because of that generational wealth mm-hmm. that has been taken from us, and then we are unable to build a cohesive family unit uh, or a society because that has been taken from us uh, by the apartheid system. Mm-hmm. It has engineered our suffering, mm-hmm. and then that's the reason that we still have to pay black tax. Mm-hmm. If ever it wasn't uh, because of the system, the only thing that I will be uh, required to do in my family is to buy the seeds to plow. Mm-hmm. Instead of buying the land first, now I have to start from the bottom ground. Yeah. Meanwhile, the wise themselves, because they've amassed yeah. and they've taken land, they keep passing it on from generation yeah. to generation. So they, yeah. they, they still uh, they, they, their wealth is built. When I'm working with uh, Richard, for instance, who's white mm-hmm. in South Africa, when I tell Richard that we're earning the same salary, when I tell Richard that I cannot afford, it's because I'm looking after my sisters, mm-hmm. I'm looking after my brothers and uh, so forth and so on. Meanwhile, that salary, Richard, is for him. Mm-hmm. 
The African yeah. artists are always caught in this place where on one hand, they are expected to stay true and be honest and work, um. you know, to defend mm, mm. and their agency. But on the other hand, you're also expected to make enough of a living from that to take care of all the people exactly. in your lives. So you are now caught in between. Which one do you do? You don't sell out. Yeah. If, well, for you to actually keep making that money, you have to somehow... Yeah sell out a little bit so that you can now take care of your family exactly. but if you don't exactly. sell out you don't take care of so you find that something and I think it's a huge responsibility a for art very huge and I'm glad that you mentioned that because you know I've been here for the past five months it has been difficult months of coronavirus but I've been watching TV because mm -hmm. when I started this I thought it's a South African thing it's a South African phenomenon and then there was a program on D DW mm -hmm. which was talking about Actually, about I think they said seven, seven billions that Africans are sending to their countries. Yeah. And the contribution that they are doing mm -hmm. in the particular countries in Europe that mm -hmm. they're in mm -hmm. by sending those monies and also working mm -hmm. and how, how the coronavirus have affected yeah. lots of all of that. Yeah. And then also people not getting the money. And if you work in the bar, mm -hmm. which happens quite often, uh, I mean, when you are away uh, or you work in the kitchen, the kitchens were closed, the bars were closed. How are you going to send money? Mm -hmm. 300 euros that they want at home mm -hmm. that feeds about 20 people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've realized that this book doesn't only speak about South Africans. We as Africans have got many things in common mm -hmm. in terms of our families. When we define families, we don't define families as if they are nuclear families. You know, mm -hmm. it's my father and my kid. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a com it's compound family. Yeah, but isn't isn't that yeah. becoming like more the, the case for younger generation now? It, it is. Where the younger generations are breaking of, away from all of them now. Of, in South Africa, actually, I'll speak about South Africa. So Because in, what you call, the what they call black tax here as a burden, yeah. we, we, in general, yeah. it can also be called, there's also a term now that is flying around, which is called the Africa burden. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. the Africa yes, body exactly. is yeah. also, yeah. okay, mm -hmm. must mm -hmm. I carry this weight of Africa on my, on my, on my, on my, on my neck, exactly. on my head? Yeah. Uh -huh. Can I always uh, uh, say these nice things about Africa when I'm here? Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Kind of thing. exactly. Because you become an ambassador of something. Yeah. But coming back to it, I, I thought it gives us a good perspective of looking into ourselves. Are some of the cultural practices still possible given this, you yeah, know, the yeah. world that we are living in yeah. at the moment. Are mm -hmm. they still possible? Can I still come to you uh, without having any consideration and say, I will sleep here, mm -hmm. you know? But yeah. again, again, yeah. that, that, that has to be seen as Ubuntu as opposed to a burden. Yeah. And how do you get a younger generation, like you said now, the younger yeah. generation are the ones thinking it's a burden. How do you get them to now see it as Ubuntu? Is that even something that is possible now. You have to make a little bit of a history statement about how they came into being. So basically, it's about <laughs> reminding them that there's yeah. a history to this, yeah, that, that, that what yeah. you're carrying with you is not just yeah. about now. Yeah. You know how you are historical president. You know how you are born. Uh, your father came here. Fred Kumala talks about 
wanting to do uh, when he finishes his degree or diploma or whatever. He now wants to do a PhD or a master's, but mm-hmm. he has to postpone it mm-hmm. because he has to educate uh, his uh, younger siblings mm-hmm. to get through to the uh, uh, you know high school. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, coming back to your question again, it's like it's a matter of us trying to explain that you are coming from that system, mm-hmm. showing a link. Once people see a link, that's when they realize that, that it is not really a burden. It's not really a burden. But it's Ubuntu. But, but, but definitely there are some aspects of them, of it. That, that is, that, that that is uh, Ubuntu. a burden. Like for instance, yeah. if I've just got married now, you expect me to extend our family home mm-hmm. and make it a double store now mm-hmm. because now my sister's are divorced, they're coming with lots of kids and my brother is divorced, he's mm-hmm. coming with <laughs> his kids. I mm-hmm. have to take care of them because the family sees me as the only family member who is uh, uh, who, who is traveling around the world. They don't even think that um, somebody's paying for my mm-hmm. <laughs> ticket. Yeah. You know? And also that where I live in Germany or wherever, I need to take care of myself mm-hmm. as well. I need exactly. to go out. But yeah, also be, be, yeah. because uh, being an African also doesn't, mm-hmm. and I mean, you can't, you can't get stuck in perpetual taking care of your own immediate family when, you know, the whole notion of taking care also extends to the world at large. Yeah. You could have families in India, you could have family in Asia, yeah. in that sense that you, I mean, you can extend your generosity to people beyond Africa. Yeah. Because yeah. that's also a way of being an African. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But again, if yeah. we go by Fred Kumalo's, you know, uh, reality, which is that yeah. he had to stop or postpone his education so that he can take care of yeah. an immediate family member. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, why wouldn't that apply to also taking care of someone who, um, who, who, who he met in, 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 in Asia or... Somebody yeah. who he doesn't even know, but feels like there's he needs somebody, to take some, care of. And you are right. There's somebody who wrote, it's called Styles Lidwaba. So his father uh, uh, used just to, so he says his father was walking, um, working somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then he met a guy who coming from Swaziland. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they assume he's coming from Swaziland because he speaks his Swat. Mm-hmm. And then the guy, what he does is telling his father, Styles father, that he doesn't have a place to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then imagine the father coming with this guy. You have to share a, a small <laughs> room and a sponge mm-hmm. with this guy that you don't know. And they don't even, know from anywhere. And even your father doesn't know, actually. Doesn't know from yeah. anywhere. Amazing. And then you stay with the person for uh, three months. You know, the person buys grosser. And, and there is no way yeah. uh, you, you cannot form a relationship that is yeah. somehow yeah. reminiscent or um, somehow somewhere similar to the one that you will have with a family member. Yeah, yeah. When you've lived with, when you've shared that kind of intimacy with someone. Yes. So exactly. you, you, you now ask yourself, you know, mm. all of these are like family bonds that mm. we have. Mm. Sometimes are they not somehow too assumed? You know, yeah, they yeah. are, they are, and then what, what, what I think oh, you're right, they are assumed. And then one other thing is that, um, I think the challenge that we're facing at this present moment is to uh, redefine what is family, interesting, you know? because I think is it redefining or understand it or really converse it? Yeah, yeah, we have uh, to, which converse. is what your book is doing, yeah, really. that's exactly what we're doing, and that's what the black text is all about. Yeah, that, that it's about that's why the way Ubuntu simply means 
family there. Your man, your manness. Yeah, humanness. Your manness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm me because of you. But it's it's you, you Ubuntu, because yeah, of me. But, uh, yeah. The Ubuntu, you know, yeah. uh, uh, concept is one that is at the core. I mean, of mm. you know, family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it allows family to extend beyond mm. blood ties. Yeah. It comes from a certain, uh, the saying itself. It says, umuntu, ngumuntu, ngabantu. Mm-hmm. So, a person is a person because of other people. Beautiful. So, that's why it's so uh, important for us to define who made you, you. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So, if I'm able to redefine who made me, me, it's a definition that like I'm trying to show to my kids. I'll give you an example why I'm saying this. I'm here in Europe at the moment. My kids are, uh, my sons that I'm living with are 12 and 7. They go to school. When they come from school, uh, I mean, the school maybe it's in uh, maybe f- uh, 10 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. When they come back from school, who looks after them? I'm not talking about them opening their house because it's not about opening their house and mm-hmm. getting inside the house. The person who sees that they are safe within this environment that I'm living in mm-hmm. is other people. Mm-hmm. So meaning that when I come back from where I come back and then uh, somebody is bound to tell me, your son is now going out with a certain girl, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Those are the people that are going to tell me. Exactly. So, <laughs> but... I'm not having, I don't have to pay them anything for them to tell me that. They're telling me because I'm part of the community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm telling them because uh, there's a saying that when we cut the finger, we bleed. Mm-hmm. All of the rest of us bleed. Mm-hmm. It simply means that whenever this, anything happens to the kids, the, the loss won't be only on me. It will be on them, even on the kids that they play with, mm-hmm. you know. So it means that when I fail as a parent, they fail as parents as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. So that's why a child... In the township or anywhere within Africa, it's easier for me to say, hey, come here, go and buy A, B, C, and D there. Mm-hmm. But you cannot do that anywhere else mm-hmm. because my child is my child. That's abuse. Mm-hmm. But with us, it's like anybody's child is my child mm-hmm. because when that child is not uh, clothed, is not fed, mm-hmm. I'm responsible also to provide uh, such kind of necessities. That was very, that was very yeah. interesting. And I think yeah. that this book is so timely. Yeah. It really fits into that point where there is a needful conversation to have. Yeah. And I think that, that this book is circulating around South Africa and setting out like this is so important um, because this is a very important conversation to have so that, you know, can really move you know forward. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I want to ask is this. This is the first time you are taking this approach to making a book. Yeah. Where you are actually an editor, right? Yes. By bringing essays together. Yes. And it becomes your book. Yeah. So is this like where you are going now? Is this part of, say, a certain form of a maturity that's come, like this sense of collaboration? Yeah. Because what's what's happened here? Before you have done your own work, yeah, personal yeah, work, yeah, yes. written your yeah. own fiction, mm. you know, and you know, had your own frame. Mm. But in this book now, which was just yeah, your, your most recent, mm. you have collaborated with other writers to make this happen. So is it like you are going, you are be realizing that, well, I think that, so like trying, reaching out and looking at the collective, looking at collaborations more, looking at, you know, joining your voice with other voices. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's, it's, it's very much, but there are certain topics that, you know, they are very big for a writer alone, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and there are certain topics that cannot be expounded through only one narrative or one version, you know, mm-hmm. like black text. I could have easily written 
an essay which is long but oh, a collection it, of essays yeah <laughs> you know so it will be a self congratulatory kind of an essay <laughs> yeah yeah you yeah, instead of talking about real issues yeah. you know so with this one it was very much important because it's not an, a conclusive kind of a um, you know a, a book mm-hmm. uh, in terms of exhausting what the topic is all about you mm-hmm. know the topic is too broad even for the book mm-hmm. but I'm glad that it started that conversation mm-hmm. in a, a, a more structured way. Mm-hmm. You know, having collaboration is a very interesting way of um, talking about different issues. Like, for instance, right now in October, mm-hmm. there's a book coming out, mm-hmm. which is called Josie Noah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you, I think, no, I, the, of Lagos Noah. La, Lagos Noah, there's Nairobi Noah, mm-hmm. there's Chicago Noah, there's whatever. And even goes to the Caribbean as well. Yeah, yeah, there's lots. Actually, the Noahs, I think, hundreds and hundreds of mm-hmm. those. So there was no Jobek one. So I've been assigned to do it. Awesome. So um, I have 22 authors to talk about Jobek. I think the format itself for me from this book worked, mm-hmm. you know. And that's why I'm collaborating with different authors uh, more at the moment to write about Johannesburg because we need to uh, know this uh, Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Johannesburg is very special to us. It's special to us because I thought I knew Johannesburg, but I don't know the white side of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know the colored side of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know the Indian uh, side of it. And then imagine to people that are not necessarily from South Africa mm-hmm. that uh, have read about South Africa, but then they don't know that in South Africa we got this racial stratification, which prevented us from knowing one another in a proper way. My last question, so oh. that we can just like round up. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you, who do you write for, or do you who do you hope mm. to to reach okay. with your writings and with your work? Yeah, I think the best way of uh, telling you uh, is that. I'm, I'm a multiple writers in one. Mm-hmm. I write uh, for magazines. When I write for magazines, for instance, of course, there's a brief. A uh, drum magazine will say, ah, write about this. So when it's commissioned, let me say, when the work is commissioned, I write for particular and specific audience. So I write for between 18 and 24. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then... Uh, because I'm a trained journalist as well. Mm-hmm. So as a trained journalist, you know that your your paper, your magazine or your paper, the audience are people that like traveling, that are between this and mm-hmm. this. So you write for them. So when I started writing my first book, I thought I'm writing for these particular people. So Doggy Dog, for instance, was me saying to me, to myself, I'm writing, I want to write a book that will appeal to any South African young generation uh, so that they can look into themselves and realize that this A, B, C, and D they can do, you know. And I'm writing for exclusively black people because uh, and township people because some of the language, that, the, all the language that I'm using there, I'm using what we call Zunglish. Mm-hmm. It's not really English, it's Zunglish, mm-hmm. a combination of Zulu and African English, mm-hmm. you know. So I thought, oh, only these people that understand Zunglish will you know, we, we understand. Mm-hmm. So I'm writing for them. Yeah. All of a sudden, the book that I thought I was writing for the young generation, <laughs> all of a sudden is bought by... Uh, uh, the biggest bias of my books are, oh, uh, okay, experienced white 
Afrikaner. You know. Why is that? How do you, you know? explain that? that? That's exactly what I'm still trying Because they're the ones that they think maybe they want to learn what is happening. It's something that they've been denied, you know, in a long time. So in order to understand this generation that uh, or this kind of these people, this race that they were denied to understand, what they have to do is to read this particular. Uh, is that a worry for you that they are actually buying your books more than this, the, the, the it, demography it, that you are trying to reach? I, I thought, yeah, it's still a worry. It's a worry. So when I was writing, I was I th- was thinking I was writing for this generation, but only to find out my books appealed around that time, appealed to this generation. And then, but this generation, uh, I mean, this race, the race that has also helped to buy the book and make the book to be known and to be read in different institutions around the world. So that's exactly the pitfalls of, of writing, you know, having audience in mind. So yeah. in most cases, the audience is me coming to the question. The first person that I'm writing for is me. I look into this uh, uh, society, my own society and think, wow. That man that I always see in the pub there, he's got a story. And I always laugh or I always cry when I listen to his story. Why can't I make other people to laugh with me? Mm -hmm. You know? So uh, then I begin to write a story and writing for an imagined. Firstly, it's me writing for myself. And then later, I write for the imagined uh, uh, audience. So the imagine no time that it, it it comes to you when you are working, especially now that you have become, you know, like in the middle yeah. um, of the profession. Yeah, and you know, excelling and doing projects and having expectations, of course, mm. from people who are working with you, collaborating with you. Yeah, in no time does it come to you to say, "Let me write in such a way that this." audience you know i'm i'm in dad in germany yeah you know and when i do a presentation here in germany uh it's germans who are going to come Mm. so in no time does it come to you in your head to say let me write and think about them so that i write in a way that they will understand what i'm saying no what makes what i do is that um i think of the way the germans brought me here they brought me here because They've seen a specific thing that I've been writing. They brought me through the books that I've been writing and not writing for them. Mm-hmm. And then they brought me here uh, through that. And it means that those stories interest them, mm-hmm. the way that I write them, mm-hmm. uh, with the flavor that I put, mm-hmm. because I'm educating them. Mm-hmm. So I'm educating them about South Africa. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also making, giving them information mm-hmm. that they didn't have. Mm-hmm. So if I try to write for them, uh, it means that I'm removing myself from my source. But it doesn't mean that I don't think about them when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I, I do think about audiences. I do think about, okay, a particular... It's no longer like before, you know. A writer grows every time. So I think I'm growing a lot because mm-hmm. I'm reading a lot from different parts of the world, mm-hmm. literature of different parts of the world, which influence my thinking and also the way I see things. Mm-hmm. And also the way I write things. Mm-hmm. you know so and um I, when i'm writing firstly to come into question firstly it's me writing a story that i want to tell mm-hmm. but i also write for the audience that is in my mind mm-hmm. that is not necessarily a homogeneous kind of audience, audience. Mm-hmm. you know it's not homogeneous yeah just, they're all yeah, mixed up they're yeah all mixed up because yeah. it could yeah. go it could go from just one person to so a group to of another, people yeah. to a society yeah so what i use the formula that i use nowadays is like look uh is this story working mm-hmm. is, does it interest me 
So how I gauge a story is like if a story makes me sad, mm-hmm. it will make somebody sad. If mm-hmm. it makes me laugh, it will make somebody laugh. Mm-hmm. Also that it means that there is something within the stories, whether they are badly written in terms of the language it used or uh, not, but there's something uh, that people will like get out of the story. Mm-hmm. If if ever is a sense of environment or a sense of character, that's great. Mm-hmm. So I mustn't change the formula. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nick, uh, for you, this conversation. It's been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. <laughs> it has been great, man. Thank you very much. Yeah.